Go to overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy to get 20% off your first month of cognitive behavioral therapy with weekly sessions online with a therapist in addition to worksheets, a journal, meditation and yoga videos and unlimited messaging. There's strong evidence that CBT can help people who hoard and accessing therapy online can be affordable and accessible. Find out more and get your discount at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Overcome Compulsive Hoarding with That Hoarder podcast. I am drowning in stuff and trying to find a way out. Listen as I explore the issues and delve deep as somebody profoundly affected by hoarding disorder. Find out more, including links to subscribe to the podcast and all of my social media at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk. Finally, I am not a doctor. I am just a hoarder doing her best. So do seek professional support if and when you need it. Hey, how are you? I am warm. It is boiling in the UK, although I'm not complaining. It's much better than it being freezing. I have a whole lot of things for you today. I have a success and a weird dilemma to start with. Then I have 15 myths and misconceptions about hoarding some of which came from you, which is amazing. I have a listener voicemail. Somebody left me a listener voicemail. And then I have a top tip for you. So I'm going to start with my success of the week and my weird dilemma of the week. So my success of the week serves to help me see that I'm making progress. I several times a week think I should have a failure of the week segment because I could fill that up daily. But the reason I don't do that is because I'm trying to stay motivated (laughs) and focusing massively, well, focusing any more on my failures than I already do would not help with that. I feel like I, I try to be really honest with myself, but highlighting my failures anymore probably wouldn't be wouldn't be ideal. It doesn't deserve its own segment. And so the success of the week is partly, yeah, to keep me motivated because I can remind myself that I'm doing okay. I'm making progress. And it's partly to keep you motivated because I hear from you that you also want to celebrate the little things and that it's really hard to do that with people who don't hoard because your success might be something that they do daily and don't even think about. Whereas for you, it's taken six months to build up to it. So that's why I share a success of the week. And the weird dilemma of the week is, again, something that a lot of listeners tell me they find relatable. 
It's just something odd I find myself wondering about because hoarding does weird things to your brain. So my success of the week, three days in a row, I did a load of washing and I took it out of the machine the same day. I do not have a tumble dryer. I've got an ancient washing machine that I desperately want to replace with a washer dryer, but it's so ancient and has lasted so long. I feel like if I got a brand new washer dryer, it will probably last three years, whereas this will probably last another 20. So I can't quite get rid of it. So I have a washing machine and then when it's washed, I have to hang things out to dry and it's a pain. There's never enough space around my house, as you can imagine, to hang things up. So I get things in the machine, turn it on, feel like I've completed the task and forget about them. So to get things out of the machine the same day so they can hang up to dry is great. And to do that for three days in a row deserved a success of the week celebration this week. My weird dilemma of the week is about spiders. What? If you also hate spiders, you may want to skip forward a minute or two, or you may want to listen, to be honest. So I can't... I. I wouldn't say I'm fully phobic of them. I think I used to be, but I think I'm I'm doing better. I hate them and I wish they wouldn't come in my house, but they they don't fill me with terror like they used to. However, I also don't want them here. And I I knew I had, you know, the odd spider. And then with all the progress I've been making in the kitchen, A couple of weeks ago, I got to one particular corner that has been unexplored for some time and disturbed. Well, it turned out that the corner's essentially been colonised by spiders and um, this was not good. I previously believed that I lived in my house with the odd spider. I now believe that spiders live in the house and they see me as an annoying visitor to their home. So I panicked and was immediately like, how do I get all the spiders out? How do I get them gone? I can't cope. And I was talking to some friends about these spiders and I mentioned that they were these, I call them wispy spiders or some people call them daddy long leg spiders. Apparently their proper name is cellar spiders. They're the kind of really long leg, small body ones. And I mentioned this to my friend that I'd I'd come across some spiders and that I hated them, but that the wispy ones at least weren't as bad as the juicy, hairy ones. And my friend said, oh, did you know they kill and eat the juicy, hairy ones? And I, I was like, that can't be possible because they've got such little bodies. How on earth can they kill one that you can hear the footsteps as it comes in? But I looked it up when I got home and apparently wispy spiders do indeed kill not only house spiders, but in certain parts of the world, properly scary spiders that can cause you pain. And so my dilemma, I now feel like I need to keep some wispy spiders to protect me from the juicy hairy ones. (laughs) 
Because I'm a lot scared, more scared of the juicy, hairy ones. But then I don't. Also, I also don't want a house full of wispy spiders. I feel like if they would just stay in a corner, so I could see them, but they didn't bother me, that would be one thing. But I keep getting in a situation where I pick up something and and one jumps off, and that's not fun. So I feel like I I maybe need to keep a strategic few and make friends with them because then they're not scary. They're like my mate Jim instead. But what do I do? Do I break up a family? Maybe I need one per room to act as like my protectors. And then, oh, I just don't know. That's my dilemma. I quite often come into this segment with a solved dilemma. So I say this was my dilemma and this is what I did about it. This one, I don't know how to handle it. I clearly need to keep some wispy spiders because it is true, actually, that I haven't touched wood, had many of the fat, juicy, hairy ones for a while. So it looks like they are keeping those in their stomachs. But how do you get a balance of one wispy spider per room? How do I get them to cooperate with that? We will see. So I was thinking about how there are a lot of myths and misconceptions about hoarding and hoarding disorder and hoarders and how much people misunderstand this this weird condition. And so I started jotting down some of them as I thought of them. And I also asked on various different social channels what myths and misconceptions you heard a lot and which ones annoyed you the most. And wow, you feel as strongly as I do about there being a lot of them around. So I have narrowed it down to 15 and I'm going to talk you through them and how they manifest and why they are wrong. And a lot of them are things that apply to a certain degree, but people assume it's across the board. And so some of them are partly true, some of them are true for some people, but people assume that all hoarders dot dot dot. And so I'm going to talk you through 15 myths and misconceptions about hoarding disorder. So number one could be summed up by any sentence that begins, you just need to dot, dot, dot. You just need to be more organised. You just need to get a routine. You just need to, we've all heard it. You just need to make an effort. You just need to get up half an hour earlier and tidy around the house. It really minimises the fact that this is a complex, confusing and messy, no pun intended, mental illness that sadly is not solved by getting up half an hour earlier and tidying around. I think when people say you just need to tidy up a bit, they have, well, one person who replied to my question said they've totally missed the point. You know, could why don't you just put it all in a pile or put it all in boxes and sort through them one by one. Why don't you just sell the stuff you don't need? Why don't you give things to a charity shop? You just need to. And I get that if somebody doesn't have lived experience of hoarding disorder, 
they probably look in and think, yeah, that's a mess. Now, what I would do is give all of that to a charity shop. What I would do is have a car boot sale and sell everything. And that's all very well, but it's sadly usually not enough for people with full-on hoarding disorder or for people who are so depressed that they can't sort out their surroundings. It minimises the problem and it just makes it seem so much simpler than it actually is. Number two common misconception about hoarding is that we are all in the same demographic. All hoarders are old, all hoarders are dirty, all hoarders are unemployed or loners or overweight, lazy, single. And sure, some hoarders are overweight, some are older, some are unemployed. If you are listening and you are one of those things, you know, I'm single, I'm overweight, and I'm not, am I old? Is 46 old? I'm not sure. It's it's getting there, isn't it? Um, but if you assume that everybody falls into this same demographic, then people who don't feel invisible, and also if you're looking in from the outside, it stops you from seeing, you know, there might be a 25-year-old hoarder in your workplace who is slim and in a relationship, and so she's young, she works, she is slim, she's not single, it might mean that you then assume she's not a hoarder. And, you know, I'm all for assuming people are not hoarders. But equally, if people feel erased by the assumptions that other people are making, that's really invalidating. The fact is that a lot of the research into hoarding is done, well, it has to be done by people who come forward. And so a lot of the demographics represented in research studies are more about the demographics of people who come forward rather than the demographics of people with the condition. We know, we all know this is a condition that people try to hide as much as they can, that we feel a lot of shame about. And so it's always worth thinking, you know, this study says that everybody was aged between 40 and 70. Is that because everybody with the condition is that age? Or is it because there's something about that demographic that makes them more able to admit it or more able to seek help? It may be that older people have a worse living situation just because they've had longer to build up a hoard. But that's not to say that young people cannot be hoarders as well. Misconception number three, and this came from a lot of different people, is that we all live a certain way. Every person who hoards lives in squalor. Everybody lives in filth. Everything within a home is unsalvageable because it's contaminated. You know, everybody who hoards can't cook because they can't get to the oven. All of these things. And those those factors do apply to some people. The problem comes when we assume that everybody is affected in that way. There are people who live in quite neat homes that have all of the thinking, all of the cognitive stuff that people who live in squalor have. They just manage it slightly differently in in their home. There are people who have every degree 
of clutter who consider themselves to be hoarders or who could be diagnosed as hoarders, especially given that of how we're portrayed on TV, people assume that if you hoard, you have floor-to-ceiling trash in every room and you crawl through tunnels three feet in the air to get to your front door. And if that's you, you have my love and sympathy because that's really hard. But if that's not you, it doesn't mean you are not sufficiently hoarderish to ask for help or to listen to this podcast or to feel like you've got a problem. If people make assumptions about how we live, that can immediately make us us put barriers up and prevent authentic communication. Misconception number four, we deserve no sympathy and we deserve no respect. We have a mental health condition that is very stigmatised and we have a mental health condition that can cause problems for other people. And those two things combine to mean that we can be treated very, very badly. And the way we are portrayed in popular media the way we might react if somebody threatens to empty our home can all reinforce that we are antisocial, angry, uncooperative, and that we deserve everything we get, basically. And because we are sometimes treated with no respect, and because sometimes we fear we won't be treated with respect, we then close in on ourselves and shut the psychological door and close everybody off because we start to believe that we deserve that disrespect. And the fact is we deserve just as much sympathy and respect as anybody with any kind of illness. And even if it's an illness that can impact other people badly. That's not to say we don't take responsibility for our behaviour and the impact it has, because we have to do that. And it doesn't mean that we are not held accountable or hold ourselves accountable. But equally, we deserve to be treated with respect. The listener voicemail segment is going to have a monthly theme to help you think of something to say. For June, the question to answer is, what's your success of the week? Maybe you threw out your first bag or your thousandth bag. Maybe you finally got rid of that old pair of shoes or you resisted that mug in the charity shop. Or maybe you told somebody about your hoarding. You finally let a plumber into your home or you cut up your credit card. Don't let me be the only person who shares a success of the week. Have your say with your voice. If you want to record a voice message for me to potentially play on a future podcast episode, go to overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash voicemail and leave a message. The topic for June is your success of the week. Let us know what you're thinking at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash voicemail. Misconception number five is that really oversimplified theories can explain hoarding disorder. So it is 
that we don't have willpower. It is that we are lazy. It is that we are deprived. It is that we are dirty. Every hoarding situation is different. And and people can lose sight of the fact that this very often stems from trauma or grief or loss. People can lose sight of the fact that we might do this because our parents did it and it's all we've ever known. People can lose sight of the fact that it's a really complex situation. Something like hoarding disorder takes years to fully manifest. And by the time we realise we have a problem, and by the time we realise there's a name for that problem, and by the time we realise that there might be help out there for that problem, we're really enmeshed in this complex mire of complexity. And oversimplifying any kind of explanation. Oh, it's because of this. She hoards because her mum died. He hoards because he's depressed. They hoard because they are lazy. It Life doesn't work that I don't like that. I don't think anything in life is that simple. I've had friends die by suicide and people often, when you tell them, they say, why? Why did she do it? Why did he do it? And you kind of end up with a bit of a pat answer because you need to be able to answer the question. But the reality is every time I've been asked that, I've thought, what a ridiculous question. Do you want their entire life story? It's how do you answer what caused that suicide? What caused that depression? What caused that alcohol abuse? It's really, really hard. And in the same way, you can't answer what caused your hoarding with one phrase because it's a combination of multifactorial issues. Is multifactorial a word? I'm sure someone will tell me if it's not. Lots of factors is what I meant. Misconception number six, and this is a really, really big one. Throwing the stuff away solves the problem. This is based in the idea that the problem is the stuff rather than the problem is our mind. And so people think, well, if you could just get rid of the stuff, then they will live in a clean home again and everything will be fine. And the TV shows that reinforce that, you know, people come in, we clear the stuff out and all is good. Back up that message. And one of the people who suggested this on social media said, it makes as much sense as expecting to cure an alcoholic simply by pouring their booze down the sink. And that is true. It's the, it's oh, it's an oversimplified solution. But more than that, it's not just that it's oversimplified as a solution. It's that it can cause damage. It can worsen the problem because the stuff goes, but if that forms some degree of trauma in somebody who's already got a tendency towards hoarding and that person uses hoarding as a coping mechanism, probably due to trauma, then furthering that trauma by clearing their home will worsen the problem, even if for three weeks or three months the home looks acceptable. It's always a matter of looking at the root of the problem and not the stuff around you. The stuff is there and needs addressing, but just looking at the stuff and not looking at why 
somebody holds is destined to fail. And just because I periodically get the question, I sometimes get asked, should we clear somebody's home when they're not there? Should we just take advantage of them going away for a weekend and clear everything out? And except in a situation where somebody is about to be evicted or somebody is about to lose their children, this is almost always a terrible idea because it is intrusive, it is really invasive, it causes trauma to the person you do it to and trauma exacerbates hoarding, but also it means their level of mistrust about you or about the world in general will rise massively. And so any future step will be much, much, much harder to get them to agree to. So just getting that in there because I periodically get asked that question. Misconception number seven is that hoarding behaviour always means hoarding disorder. And this is a good one because there are people who have hoarding behaviours. They don't get rid of stuff. They might live in squalor. They live in very difficult conditions. But they wouldn't have a diagnosable hoarding disorder. And this might be that they are very depressed and things build up because they can't get out of bed and do anything about it. It might be that they have a substance abuse problem and all of their energy and effort goes into acquiring and using their substance and their surroundings just become irrelevant to them. There can be issues around neurodiversity and autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, that kind of thing, causing the kind of behaviours that we see in hoarding, but without the thinking that characterises hoarding disorder. And also dementia is a big issue. There are people who have lived in neat and tidy surroundings their entire life and develop dementia as an older person and end up living in what looks very much like a typical hoarded home, but this is a dementia issue and not a hoarding disorder issue. Similarly, conditions like schizophrenia, all kinds of things can be mixed up with hoarding disorder when in fact they are distinct and would benefit from maybe a different approach of treatment. And people who want to clean their home but maybe have mobility problems or chronic fatigue and just can't do anything about it, or people who have always lived in a reasonably tidy home and then inherit the entire contents of two sets of grandparents' homes and are suddenly overwhelmed with a home far too full of stuff. They don't have hoarding disorder, but the way they live can look like hoarding, and the behaviours they engage in as they struggle with whatever they're struggling with can resemble hoarding. And it's important for the person living in those situations that the correct thing is identified so that the help they receive can be appropriate. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Number eight is that the problem is the stuff. Now we've touched on this tangentially in some of the others, but I wanted to look at it on its own because it really deserves its own mention. The problem with hoarding is not a problem of clutter. Clutter becomes the problem in many people's eyes and clutter is what might get the attention of the authorities or might result in your partner leaving you. But that's not where the problem is. Hoarding is a matter of trauma. Usually it's certainly a matter of mental illness. It's a grief, loss, coping mechanism, and it's a situation that can cause damage to other people. If you hoard and there are children in your home, that is causing them damage. Or if you have a partner or if you have elderly parents living with you and they are not hoarders, this is a really difficult situation for them. You might be causing problems to your neighbours. You're certainly causing problems for yourself. Um, But the stuff, while looking like it's the problem, is not. The problem is this maladaptive coping mechanism that somewhere along the line, our brain decided was the solution to whatever problems we were facing. And we grasped onto it and like many mental health conditions, if you think of something like anorexia, the weight isn't the inherent problem. The inherent problem is the mental illness, but the weight becomes the problem if somebody becomes dangerously underweight. But just focusing on getting their weight up without looking at anything else doesn't resolve anything and it creates more problems for the future. And in the same way, if we look at the problem of hoarding as a problem of clutter, then like pouring alcohol down the sink, like refeeding somebody with anorexia, it momentarily improves somebody's safety and it momentarily gives them a glimpse of how things might look, whether that's good or bad. But in the bigger picture, it's looking in the wrong direction. Misconception number nine is a really interesting one. And that is that people with hoarding disorder don't notice the mess they live in. Some of you will be hearing this and screaming insight at your phones or wherever you're listening. And this really, I mean, like all of them, this is, is one where for some people it applies and some people it doesn't apply. But there is an assumption that if we live in a hoard, we don't notice that our homes are hoarded. Now, I notice, I was going to say daily, but every time I look around, I notice and hate a lot of the stuff around me these days. I know this is how I live. It's just taking quite a long while for me to fix it. Be And that's both the stuff and the brain. I notice it. I know that this is not a healthy or appropriate or useful way to live. 
And the idea that I live in blissful ignorance is not accurate. However, there are people who genuinely have no insight into their hoard. They either don't notice it or they notice it but don't mind it at all. They look around and think this is perfect, this is great. And I can certainly relate to enjoying the kind of cocoon feeling of it. Increasingly, it feels more oppressive than cocoonish, but I can relate to that. And there are people who completely lack insight into their hoarding. However, to assume that every hoarder lacks insight is just, it's just inaccurate. And while I'm glad that I do have insight into my situation and I do see the mess, I'm also aware that it can be a bit of a double-edged sword because sometimes my awareness of how bad it is becomes a stick to beat myself with. And when I'm beating myself with that stick, I I lose some degree of self-belief and I lose some degree of self-esteem. And those things then make me less able to address the horde. It's a real vicious circle that the more I see how bad it is, the more I then think I'm bad and the less motivation I have to do anything about it because I'm miserable because I'm so bad and I'm so bad that I don't deserve a nice home anyway. And so there's a real risk of a vicious cycle for people with insight. And insight can develop as well. Certainly five years ago, I knew I've never been ignorant to the fact that other people would have seen my home as unacceptable. But there was a while where I knew that other people would disapprove, but I also was kind of okay with things. And so I guess I still had some insight. I just didn't particularly have motivation. I think what it was, was that I just didn't have the resources. I had no idea, no idea where to start. And so it was easier to go, this is fine, like that meme, than it was to embark on dehoarding, which I didn't know how to do. I didn't know who was safe to talk to. I had no idea how to address it. So it was easier to be fine, fine, fine about it than it was to fully acknowledge that the way I was living was was unacceptable for me and for the world, frankly. So there are levels of insight, there are degrees of insight, and there are also, there are, our brains protect themselves to some degree. And if something is too hard to face, sometimes we just refuse to face it. But to assume that no hoarder has any understanding of the way they live is really a big myth. Myth number 10 of 15, that hoarding TV shows show what hoarding is like. I am not a fan of them. That is abundantly clear. And mostly that is because I feel like they exploit people's distress for the viewing public's entertainment. And I find that really distasteful. I also don't like them because they promote the idea that a big dramatic house clearance 
involving lots of screaming and crying is the way to help somebody. But also, they are not an accurate representation of everybody who hoards, and they make viewers think that they are, because the same scenario is repeated again and again and again and again on the show. So people assume that if you hoard, your home is like the people on the show, and they assume that you have the same degree of insight, you have the same degree of willingness to make changes as the people on the show, whereas actually the people on the show represent the people on the show. Like research studies study the people who come forward, people on the TV show are chosen because they are appropriate for the narrative of that show. And so to think that the people who fit the narrative of a show format are representative of all people who struggle with thoughts or behaviours or actions around hoarding is quite naive and is definitely inaccurate. Myth number 11 is that we can't possibly be perfectionists. And I thought this the first time I heard that, well, I think I read it in a book, a Randy Frost book, one of the first books I read about hoarding, When I first came across this idea, I thought it was kind of ridiculous. How can a perfectionism problem cause or exacerbate hoarding? Surely perfectionists have perfectly neat homes. But it was only when I started learning then more about perfectionism that I could fully see where the problem was. The idea that my brain frequently says, or if I can't do this properly, I won't do it when faced with a pile of stuff or when faced with a logistics task within the home or anything like that. One of my very frequent nopes when I'm trying to address something, when I actually question why I'm saying, why my brain is immediately saying no, it very often comes down to I can't do it properly, so there's no point. And that's perfectionism. Misconception number 12 is an interesting one that I hadn't come across or thought about before, but this came from a listener. And that is that the diagnostic criteria for hoarding disorder are clear or and unambiguous. Now, this person who commented on Facebook argued that the wording in the DSM-5, which is the American diagnostic and statistical manual for the lists all, well, not all mental health conditions, but all chosen mental health conditions, has a whole lot of, of different criteria. But this person picked up on the this particular point. Persistent difficulty discarding or parting with possessions, regardless of their actual value. And made a really interesting point that that wording, regardless of their actual value, makes a very confusing situation. So I'm going to read what they said rather than try and summarise because it's a bit complicated. The regardless of actual value bit is ambiguous with at least two significantly different possible meanings. It could read as either one, the actual value or lack thereof of belongings is not in itself a diagnostic criterion, or two, the actual value or lack thereof 
is not a criterion used by those with hoarding disorder in deciding which items should remain in their homes and or does not affect the degree of distress caused by parting with belongings. So what this person is saying is that you are either diagnosed because you are just as distressed at discarding something of low value as you are of high value, or they argue you are diagnosed because you have difficulty discarding possessions full stop, and that the regardless of the actual value is in the mind of the diagnoser. And this person basically culminates this argument with saying that I believe that the pervasiveness of this out-of-context statement contributes to a lot of the popular fallacy that hoarders have zero ability to discern trash from treasure and therefore cannot be reasoned with. And I think that's a really important conclusion. If it's thought that we have no sense of the actual value of an item, because the thing about actual value is what does that mean? Does it mean monetary value? Does it mean the value according to somebody else? Something that I value highly might be something else that somebody else values as nothing, but that can be the other way around as well. A friend can have a really old battered book and I might think it has no value at all, whereas they adore it more than anything in their home. And who is to say what is the value of that book, first of all? I think it, to me, it has no value. To them, it has a lot of value. And so actual value, I I struggle to know what that means. But whether we are diagnosed because the perception is that we don't know the value of things, or whether we are diagnosed just because of the difficulty discarding, and the diagnoser makes some judgment on actual value is quite an interesting discussion. And yeah, I can see this person's point that it could contribute to the idea that we just have no idea what's valuable and what's not. Misconception number 13, hoarding is a form of obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, this came about because hoarding used to be considered in the OCD and OCPD kind of family of disorders because there can be compulsivity about it, hence compulsive hoarding. And because we might do a lot of checking, we've got to check all the garbage bags 10 times before they can go out, that kind of thing. But it's now a condition in its own right. And I think that is, well, I mean, that is clearly the right decision because although there are these factors that could be considered compulsive and um, obsessive, such as compulsive acquiring and a compulsive need to hold on to things, there are a lot of people who hoard, who have no particular OCD symptoms. I happen to have OCD in a form that is, I think, completely unrelated to my hoarding. And so I feel like I have the two, but they are separate things. And the myth that hoarding and OCD are one and the same or always interlinked can mean that people just get the wrong treatment. If you have hoarding disorder and you're funneled into OCD treatment, it might help, but it might be the completely wrong approach because they're looking that, you know, if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If somebody treats OCD, then they will treat OCD. When I was on the waiting list for CBT, I had to go through these weekly phone calls with this woman and she 
clearly had been trained to treat anxiety and depression. And it didn't matter what I tried to talk about hoarding. She would funnel it back to anxiety and depression because that's what she knew how to treat. And as a result, it was kind of useless. The CBT itself was not useless. The CBT itself was honestly surprisingly helpful, Uh, surprising to me, not surprising to a lot of people. There's a lot of evidence for it. But I was surprised by how helpful it was. But that kind of gatekeeping process I had to go through to get to it really highlighted that if you're treating the wrong thing, that nobody, nobody gets any better. Number 14 is the myth that our boundaries do not matter. And the fact that we've got too much stuff means we should accept somebody coming in and just clearing that stuff or clearing some of that stuff or making us clear some of that stuff. And then people, hoarders, react badly to that and, you know, dig our heels in. And then we're seen as really uncooperative and really like unwilling to make the slightest effort. One of the people who talked about this in the social media comments made a really important point that if somebody we knew and somebody we trusted stole money from our purse, our wallet, we would feel that as really intrusive. And whether they stole a pound or a hundred pounds, it would still feel horrible that that person had stolen from us. And it might feel worse if they stole a hundred pounds than if they stole a pound. But the fact is, it's the principle of being stolen from, it's the principle of somebody just helping themselves, that is why we are disgruntled and why we are upset about that, rather than necessarily the monetary amount. And I thought that was a really good point. And so in the same way, while to somebody who doesn't hoard, it might look like, oh, well, if I just take these empty jars out, she'll never notice. In reality, that is an intrusion and it screams at us that our boundaries are not important and that we don't need to give consent. And the reality is that we have boundaries. We may have stronger boundaries around our stuff than most, but the way to deal with that is not to trash the boundaries and go ahead anyway. And myth and misconception number 15 is that hoarding has a 97% recidivism rate. Recidivism is a word that's quite fun to say. It normally is used to mean if people commit a crime after being released from prison, that's the recidivism rate. And so immediately people are associating hoarding with criminal activity, which is already puts my hackles up. But I was disheartened for so long because I kept hearing, oh, hoarders always go back to hoarding. Hoarding has a 97% recidivism rate. They always fill the houses back up. And so I used to think there's no point trying to tackle my hoard. There's no point trying to de-hoard because everybody says I am guaranteed to get back to this situation, even if I make a lot of effort. So why make the effort? That was genuinely a reason I that delayed me starting to address this. And so I, I looked into it. I did an episode on this that I will link to in the show notes. But basically, I looked into 
where this figure came from. And what I could find was nothing. There seems to be no research study, no anything that originally found that 97% of hoarders refill their homes after they've been cleared. And I suspect what happened was somebody was talking about how a lot of hoarders refill their homes and somebody else said, yeah, like 97% of them, I bet. And then somebody else heard that and started quoting it as a fact. I don't know. I don't know for sure. And if you indeed ever do come across the original research that suggested this, then I will re-look at this idea. But basically, if you too have been put off taking any action because of this, what I found, first of all, 97% seems to be plucked out of the air. We certainly do have a high risk of going back to old behaviours. But what seems to make the difference between going back to old behaviours or not going back to old behaviours is the amount of support we have. If we have a therapist, if we have social support, if we have a professional organiser and we do it kind of methodically and thoughtfully and carefully, we are a lot less likely to go back to hoarding behaviours. Also, if we address the underlying issues, we are a lot less likely to go back to hoarding behaviours. And also, if we have a choice about how the de-hoarding happens, we are a lot less likely to go back to hoarding behaviours. So, if somebody comes in and clears your flat without your consent, you've got a pretty high likelihood of going back, especially if you've had no kind of emotional support. Whereas if you're seeing a therapist and looking at the underlying issues and you've got some social support helping you with the practical stuff and you do it steadily and thoughtfully and you look at what comes up for you and say, oh, that's interesting, what's happening there? And really address stuff and do things systematically. It seems that you've got a much lower chance of going back to hoarding behaviours once your home is clear. So if you hear that number and think this is all pointless, ignore it, is my opinion. Get some support, get some practical help, work on yourself, learn as much as you can about hoarding, listen to this podcast, which is a weird thing to say because if you hear this, you are listening to it already. And don't give up before you've even started. So it is time to reveal my first ever listener voicemail that I've received. And I'm so chuffed, so chuffed to have got one. So thank you so much for phoning in. If you are listening and you want to leave me a voicemail, you can do that at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash voicemail. And my question for June was, tell me your success of the week. I share my successes of the week and I want to know what listeners' successes of the week are. And this person phoned in with their success of the week. Have a listen. Hi, um, not even a listener yet, but I found your podcast and I'm excited. I just really sat down to take a quick break because I just cleared out two shelves out of my refrigerator and I'm okay. Thank you. 
So massive well done to you. That's It's great that you have a success of the week. And I get it. Why are fridges so scary? <laughs> I don't know why it's so hard to clean out a fridge. And so I'm really impressed that you have. Well done. If you are listening and you want to share your success of the week for June or indeed say anything else, you can do so at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash voicemail. Do you want to be a de-hoarding darling? You can be now at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash darling. If you love the podcast and want a bit extra, you can finally sign up to subscribe. Members will get an exclusive monthly post with an additional top tip, some podcast and music recommendations, and a personal update from me about how things are going. Find out the full details at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash darling. So my top tip this week is one of those where I genuinely don't know if this is just me. So if it is, apologies for the next 45 seconds of content specifically designed for myself. It may be that this affects a lot of you. I just don't know. But as I mentioned earlier in the episode, I am afraid of spiders. I am especially afraid of them popping up out of nowhere unexpectedly. And there are piles of things that I avoid tackling because I'm scared there are spiders in there and they will jump out. When I had all that time when I couldn't access my kitchen cupboards, I realised that part of my reticence was a fear that once I finally reopened and got to my kitchen cupboards, I would open them and they'd be full of spiders. And that's one of the things that held me back from addressing it for so long. So, my tip of the week is for people who avoid addressing cupboards or piles or anything like that because of a fear of spiders. And my tip is this, if you're worried that they're going to jump out or that they're going to, they've just got really settled and you don't really want to deal with that, my tip is if it's a pile of clothes, give it a kick, kick it over, prod it with a stick. If it's a cupboard, open it and then what you do is you do that and then you leave the room. Leave the house if you need to. Safe in the knowledge that spiders do not like being disturbed and they will not be in the pile when you go back in the room because they are annoyed and disgruntled but they don't want to be squashed. So they will have retreated elsewhere into a corner and you can pick up your clothes, you can open the cupboard, well, you've already opened the cupboard, you can go into the cupboard, safe in the knowledge that any kind of spider tsunami that you are envisaging, that probably will not happen anyway, but in case that's putting you off, that will have already happened by the time you get back to the room. So as I say, apologies if that is a top tip just for myself, (laughs) but there we are. Okay, thank you for listening and I will speak to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Overcome Compulsive Hoarding with That Hoarder podcast. You can find more online at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at That Hoarder and on Facebook at Overcome Compulsive Hoarding with That Hoarder. 
To find out more about how you can support the podcast and the overall project, go to overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash support and do subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. There may be links in this podcast that earn me money. This doesn't come at any extra cost to you if you ever make a purchase through the links and it helps to support the future of the podcast. Getting professional support as a hoarder can make all the difference. Having somebody on your side who can help you to learn about yourself and make progress in your home is invaluable, but finding an affordable therapist can be a nightmare. Accessing therapy online gives you the option to find the right person who doesn't even have to be in the same country as you, never mind the same town or city. OnlineTherapy.com offers a weekly live session with a CBT therapist for individuals or couples. It offers unlimited messaging, worksheets, a journal, and even yoga and meditation videos to help you cope. I have a special link for you that will get you a discount at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy. As you know, I've had CBT, and two years later, I still use the realizations I had about myself as well as the skills I learned. Listeners tell me that you've started to use some of the skills I've shared on this podcast. CBT is a therapy with a broad evidence base that is widely used for a range of mental health difficulties, including hoarding. OnlineTherapy.com specializes in CBT, and if you're not happy with your therapist, you can change to a new one with the click of a button, and prices start at $40 a week which, if you've seen a therapist before, you'll know is incredibly cost-effective. What's more, if you use my link, you can get a whopping 20% off your first month. So sign up at overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk slash online therapy and get 20% off your first month with your new online CBT therapist.